Thank you for listening to the following films podcast. Originally intended for Gene Autry, Under Western Stars was the first starring role for Roy Rogers. The newly remastered Under Western Stars will premiere at the Lone Pine Film Festival on Saturday, October 9th at 2.30 uh, Pacific Standard Time. The screening will be followed by a panel discussion moderated by post-producer Steve Latshaw, who happens to be today's guest. The panel will also feature Roger's daughter, Cheryl Rogers Barnett, along with notable film restoration and preservation experts. The panel will provide a real behind-the-scenes curtain view of preserving under-Western stars, other films like it, and the growing challenges faced as films age and formats evolve. If you happen to live near Lone Pine, California, and would like more information about the screening, go to www.lonepinefilmfestival.org. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Greetings. Hey, Steve. How are you today? Hi there. Sorry, I had a little Zoom trouble. Don't we all? It's literally, (laughs) I had it on my end before I got in also. So uh, I thought it was me that was causing a screw up there. So No, I didn't. The link link didn't work initially. So, and I, I think it was a problem on my end. So, but here we are. Excellent. Well, thank you for taking the time to do it today. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm happy to do it. Happy to do it. Well, I I guess the first thing, um, because we're talking about this collection of two films that are taking the span of a career, the first and the last. um, And these were the first films I've seen of his. I've never seen one of his movies before going into these two Ah, films. And it was actually kind of cool to see them together like this i'm wondering what your what how did this come about for you and what were uh what was your thought behind wanting to bring pair these uh, specific films together well i was a when i was three and four and five years old i was watching the roy rogers tv show as a kid that's the early Hmm. 60s so i've always been a huge fan a big part of my childhood and a big part of a lot of childhoods of my generation and earlier than that. So Roy Rogers was always a big deal. Um, In 2003, I had heard that the Rogers Museum out here was closing and it had about two weeks left to stay open. And I thought, well, I better get down there and, you know, say goodbye to some some childhood connections. And I, I toured the museum. They were closing in like two weeks. And after I finished, I went into the gift shop to pick up some swag. I figured I'd get some DVDs and, and they had some of his old movies for sale. And uh, I picked a, a couple of those, and, but they had this, this movie over in the corner called Macintosh and TJ. And I, I had dimly remembered from the seventies that this briefly had come out. And uh, I said, I'll take it home and look at it. And and by that point, I'd seen most of the films that he'd ever made, was very familiar with it. I took it home and I watched it. And it was such a different experience because he's not playing Roy Rogers. He's playing a, a drifting, aging uh, cowboy that's going from ranch to ranch looking for, for work and dealing with, you know, age creeping in and everything else. Befriends this young runaway kid who's in trouble and and over the course of the next 90 or so minutes, teaches him some life lessons. And so I just fell in love with the film. It's beautifully written. It's got an incredible cast for the era. It's, it's, um, the, the compositions are stunning. And uh, so the dream was always to somehow get in a position to get that 
that scene to a wider audience because it had pretty much disappeared after a brief theatrical run of a few weeks back in, in 1976. So we got moving on that project. We did a restoration of it and um, did very well with it. Uh, while we were in the middle of the restoration, um, I ran into, had a conversation with a guy named Woody Wise, who's runs the film program at the Lone Pine Film Festival. And he's been a collector and a historian for years. And he goes, you know what you ought to do? You ought to find Roy's first movie um, where he starred in it under Western stars. And you ought to, you ought to put that out together with Macintosh and TJ. His, and he said his first and his last. And I said, well, it's, it's a public domain title. I've seen it on the internet and they're all the 53 minute TV versions. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, Sam Sherman, do you know Sam Sherman? I said, of course, Sam Sherman produced a lot of great drive-in movies in the 60s and 70s. And he's an avid historian and collector. And he says, well, Sam Sherman has the only complete uncut print of that film. Uh, it's 65 minutes long and it came from the collection of, of uh, Joseph Kane, who directed the film. And it was a, a print that, that Republic Pictures had made for Joseph Kane. And Sam Sherman eventually took possession of it. And he says, call Sam up. So I called Sam up and I said, hey, you know, could, could we rent this from you? We'd like to, like to pair them together. And he said, sure. So we made a deal. And then and we got, uh, got his film element. We, we scanned it in 4K and then started the work on it. It just seemed, it seemed to be a natural pairing. And the stories behind Under Western Stars are great too, because it, it wasn't supposed to be a Roy Rogers movie. It was supposed to be a Gene Autry movie. And I could see that. Autry, that would make sense. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it was going to be basically Gene Autry goes to Washington and, and bails out the, uh, the people who live in the Dust Valley who are desperate for water. And because uh, Gene did those sort of socially significant storylines in, in, in that era. And, but Gene wasn't getting paid much by Herbert Yates, who ran Republic. And so he decided he was going to skip town. And so he called the director, Joseph Kane, up the night before the Monday he was supposed to start and said, just so you know, Joe, I, I'm not going to be at the studio tomorrow. Uh, I'm skipping town. And so production shut down. Gene took off and he started doing personal appearances around the country, mostly in the in the South. And Republic sent process servers out across country to chase him and and somehow get him to come back to the studio. And every time Gene would enter a town. The pro the, the people would kind of surround him, the process servers would drive in the townspeople would surround the process servers and escort them out of town. And that went on for weeks. Well, in the meantime, Republic says, well, who have we got? And there's, there was somebody mentioned that kid, Leonard Sly, who had done some bit parts in some of their films and some singing roles. In the meantime, Roy decided he'd heard that they were auditioning for a new singing cowboy. So he went down to the studio, somehow managed to get in ran into an executive who knew him and says, you know, I was just thinking about you. And they auditioned him. They changed his name to Roy Rogers and they made the Gene Autry movie with Gene Autry's sidekick, Smiley Burnett. Same songs, same 
same storyline, same script, just this new kid who didn't know one end of the camera from another. So, and it feels like he's such a natural right away. He feels really comfortable. I mean, in this movie, you can see when you watch them side by side, his progression as an actor is clearly there. Um, but there, the weight of his first film, it wasn't like what he was doing in this last film. And it, it's a charming movie and it is socially conscious and aware, but it doesn't feel very heavy at the same time. I, I had a specific question about that though, with the restoration for both of these, where I'm really surprised this was the only print, the audio in this film actually sounds really good. Uh, the songs sound great in it. So how much of a challenge was that piece of it? The, the, um, First of all, I think the print was in pretty good shape considering the mileage on it. And Sean Lawrence, who did our our remastering of it, um, both picture and sound, we, we took it through our sound department to sort of beef up the sound because what, what was there was already really good. Mm -hmm. uh, and what we did was kind of take the rust off of it um, and and cleaned it up some so that it, it, it sounded it sounded better. Uh, you talk about Roy's acting style for a minute. One of the interesting things, he was always seemed very confident and comfortable. He'd, he'd done quite a few smaller parts in, including in a, in a Gene Autry movie. So he wasn't completely in, inexperienced, but he, he took to it real quickly and, and real well. And, um, but an interesting story about comparing the two films, um, for the Lone Pine Festival last year, I got to interview uh, Cheryl Rogers Barnett, Roy's daughter. And in 1975, as they'd finished um, shooting Macintosh and TJ, they had a first cut ready to look at. And they were doing the cutting over on the Radford studio lot, which used to be Republic Pictures, where Roy used to work. And so Roy and Dale went down with Cheryl to see the first cut of the film. And they go to a screening room and they're sitting there watching it. And Cheryl was familiar with her dad's TV show and movies where he played the character Roy Rogers, but she'd never really seen him do a character role before, a character lead. And so she said, she told me she's about 30 minutes into this film and she's watching it. And she's sitting on one side Dale's in the middle and Roy's on the other side of Dale. And about 30 minutes in, Cheryl goes, mom, he could really act. <laughs> and, and Roy stuck his head around Dale and he said, well, I have had some practice, but I, I love that, sh that story. That's fantastic. Well, it feels, even though he was playing the character of Roy and all these other films, and I'm just having these two to compare, it feels like when he was playing somebody that wasn't his namesake, that he was playing a much more grounded and perhaps more honest reflection, if not of him, of somebody he knew, because it felt like that was much more based in a reality of where he possibly I, was. I got the sense from talking to his daughter and from some of the things she said, and just from watching the film, you kind of get the sense that the guy in Macintosh and TJ is what the real guy was like, right down to the scene where he's using um, sticks to plug up his radiator in, in the truck. Roy loved to work on vehicles and that you, I could just see him in that film. So it's kind of like 96 minutes of hanging out with the guy. Uh, I do know that he had a, a 
very acute sense of humor um, that it doesn't necessarily come out in the film. I mean, he he loved, and Cheryl confirmed this for me, he absolutely loved the, the film Blazing Saddles. It was one of his all-time favorites. And his favorite scene was the the beans, the, the fart scene, which tells you a lot about Roy. You know, he's, it's about as base as it gets. Yeah, yeah and, 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 and she also confirmed that Dale, on the other hand, absolutely hated the film and, and was appalled by it. So, but, so I know he had a great sense of humor, but, but yeah, you do really get a sense that this is, this is the guy. And it's interesting. The film's almost like Shane in that you've got Mm. Shane coming to a town that's, that's fraught with trouble and using his fists and eventually his gun, he manages to solve the, the, the town's problems and then walk away. In this film, you've got Roy coming into a, a very troubled community and through his involvement, eventually helping out that community and helping to, to rid some of the problems, but doing it in a much more spiritual way or a, a way of sort of, you know, doing the right thing by example approach that, that his character takes. And I think that's, that's neat about it. It's kind of, it's kind of taking, because of the themes that are in the film, you know, there's, there's death, there's, there's violence, there's a, yeah. a peeping Tom and, and, um, there's, there's spousal abuse in the film. And it's kind of taking this Roy Rogers character as an older, wiser man and putting, putting him right in the middle of some very real life trauma in a, in a community and, and him being able to help people triumph through it. So it's, it's kind of interesting that way. Well, and if you, you think about it as the, um, the progression of a life and him moving from project to project and how i guess when you're doing film projects it can feel like you're moving from a community once every you know couple of weeks really at that time the turnaround on these things was so fast at that point in time that you'd be doing several pictures a year and you could feel like something of a drifter i would imagine at that time and it seems like there could be a more of a human connection to that now the other start side with the deeper themes of that movie um, I love this approach that it's, it's not necessarily, if you compare it directly to Shane, that, it, um, that's bullets and fists, but this is like a moral toughness, not that Roy couldn't hold his own physically in this, but it does, it's his moral center that I think is the, uh, the real strength that he has. Yeah. And it, it's, it's interesting from an acting standpoint, he, Andrew Robinson, who plays the, the, the peeping Tom in this film, um, who, who's a is a really interesting character too, because the character is not a stock villain. He has a tremendous amount of self-loathing and uh, you know, he's struggling internally with himself, but Andy, who is like starstruck that I'm getting to do, I'm actually getting to do scenes with Roy Rogers said he was a very intuitive actor. You know, he was very much in the moment. It was easy for him, but you know, he, it, it came to him with a lot of, without a lot of process. Um, conversely, Joan Hackett was very much, much a method actor and, and she would have to get the proper motivation. She would ask a tremendous amount of questions about scenes and lines and things like that all through the process, which according to Cheryl drove Roy crazy, you know, because he was, and she's a wonderful actress, but he would come home and he'd say, why doesn't she just hit her marks and say her lines, you know? And, and 
that's an old school approach that, that yeah. he took obviously but but uh but yeah it's 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 a it's they're both very interesting films uh, under western stars is is uh is what amazes me about that film is that given the circumstances under which it was made the fact that that it wasn't supposed to be his film mm-hmm. but what he does in that film is create a, a, a an iconic character in that first film i mean he's that guy in the very first film you got a new name you got a new approach you have a new horse you're suddenly the leading man and you actually you actually claimed it you you became a star after this one one movie and it's interesting how all those kind of ingredients hit and he was able to pull that off because it, it takes as you know it takes a lot of actors even if they're playing the same role a few pictures to kind of you know nail the character well i mean look the at the movie. look at the james bond series when whenever they yeah. have a new james bond it usually takes two or three movies before you even buy it you know sometimes not but he claimed it the very first film well it was i mean it i think a lot of that from what you're saying makes sense that this was written for Gene Autry. This was Gene Autry's movie. The movie is written in a way that it treats Roy Rogers as a star. Everybody's calling him Roy and treating him this way. And it's written for a star. So the movie has this presumption that it's leading man is already a star. And when he fits in, we just assume that he's already a star at this point. So it just, it's almost, it takes that getting to know you out of the, out of it. And it's just here, here's your guy. This is your new star. And I think that's why it works so well. And you wouldn't even think that this would be his first attempt at this because it just feels as it was executed for that, for him to be the star of it or for this to be a known actor, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, and you're right. And I hadn't even thought of that before. That's a very interesting perspective and it makes a lot of sense that it's really a showcase, but I, Mm -hmm. and, and, so it was like it was basically his to win or lose because all the other circumstances are there for him. All he's got to do is pull it off, and 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 he does. So that's good for him. And good. yeah, absolutely good. Good for good for us yeah. because I mean it just it worked out really well. And could you talk a little bit about the one thing I love about both of these restorations? Um, one thing I can't stand um, is when a film is restored and it no longer looks like a film anymore. Um, when it's the color palette is saturated to the point that it doesn't look like anything that would have existed um, in the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s. And I feel like this, the way that it jumps through, the there's an inconsistency in style when you're shooting on film at that era that is represented here. And it feels like an honest portrayal of what this could have looked like in a theater at that point. We, um, first of all, I, I got to clarify the, the, uh, the under Western stars is not a restoration. It's a, oh, okay. it's got a, it. it's a remaster that we did a lot, a lot of cleanup on. Um, but the philosophy that we have in terms of restoration is like I said, it's, it's, it's taking the rust off. We, we, we don't want to create something that it's not. And I've seen, I'm a huge classic movie guy, and a lot of the recent restorations I look at, and I, I, this, the color doesn't look right. This is too intense. This is too invi- uh, vivid. This, this was a three-color, three-strip Technicolor film, 
but it doesn't look like that anymore. It looks like something that we would do today. And mm -hmm. our approach, I know Sean's approach, because he also did uh, Macintosh and TJ and did a breathtaking job on that. Um, the approach is to make it the best version of what it is. In other words, the, the most clear, pristine version we think we can make of how it would have looked in the time. In other words, we want this to look like the filmmaker's original intent. And we want to make it the best version of what it was in 1938 or 1976. So that's the approach as opposed to, we don't want to make it into something it's not. We, want to, we don't want to improve it. We want to bring it back as pristine as it was. And there's the, sometimes as film fans, we can fall in love with things that maybe weren't the intention when it first came. We can fall in love with some cigarette burns and some unevenness and some things that we had from bad prints that were just, especially when you're talking about um, things that are public domain where bad copies get out there. And some there's some purists, these people that get used to a certain version of a film that when you do actually clean it up and just make it closer to what um, it looked like or what they wanted it to look like when it was initially released, there'll be pushback on that as well. And I'm personally of the, I think a similar camp to you where, yeah, let's clean this up and make it look as good as it could have looked at the time without making it feel like it's not something of its time, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, no, we want to keep it something that's as of its time, absolutely. Um, Macintosh and TJ was in pretty good shape when we found the film elements. They'd been, the family had thought that the film elements had been lost and our director of restoration, uh, I came to him in a panic and I said, they don't have, they want to make the deal, but they don't have the film. They think it's all gone. And their dad who produced it has died and they don't know where to go. And he did some digging and discovered that it had been sitting, all the elements had been sitting in Technicolor in, in Camarillo, California for 45 years. Wow. And so it was a great moment to call up the Penlands and say, hey, we found your dad's film. That was an exciting moment, but uh, it was in pretty good shape. So we didn't have to do, we had to do some registration fixes and deal with some warping and some basic things like that. We did some, some DRS to get rid of the most egregious scratches or dirt and just kind of clean that up. Uh, we did something similar to Under Western Stars, but you couldn't, you couldn't remove all of the dirt um, or all of the scratches. It, it, I mean, we think the print was probably at least 70, 75 years old. Wow. And, and so we, we did as much as we felt we could. And um, you can clean these things up too much. I remember about 15 years ago, there was a, a studio that was, was um, restoring from film a number of, of uh, Sam Fuller movies mm -hmm. from the 50s. And I was with a company that was doing the, the telecine and, and restoration and cleanup. And one particular film, Sam in those days used a lot of stock footage. And one particular film they, they did a pristine cleanup on this movie. It was black and white and it just looked stunning. The only problem was the cleanup was so effective, but it didn't have any effect on the stock footage. So that when you saw the film, you'd see this pristine 
new footage that was shot. And whenever it would cut to the stock footage, it would be this jarring cut with all this dirty, scratched stuff. And the directive came from the company that owned it, you know, start again and don't clean it so damn well, you know, so that kind of stuff. <laughs> it does. And sometimes um, that kind of contrast can be good. Um, when I just got the 4K um, release of Clockwork Orange and the scene when they're in the car and they have the uh, back rear projection they're using, it never was intended to look realistic. And it's only more fake looking now than it's ever been. And it actually adds to the element. Um, but it doesn't sam seem like Sam Fuller was trying to fool anybody or he wanted to fool people with the stock footage where Kubrick was really just trying to, he was never trying to fool anybody with that footage. Well, I, I think it, it, the, that's part of the problem though, I think, don't you think with HD that, that I saw an, a late 50s Western in VistaVision, a Paramount title called The Oregon Trail. And mm -hmm. they'd built this movie around stock footage from an earlier Technicolor film that they had done prior to widescreen. And so the cast, it's, it's about a trail drive, but the cast, everything that the cast does is in a, a giant cyclorama inside a soundstage. And the cast never goes outside. They're on this cyclorama and they're just pulling these wagons endlessly in this circle around the soundstage. And in HD, on some shots, you look and you can see the paint chipped away on the cyclorama, like there'd be a rock, but part of it is missing and is just bare wall. And it, yeah. it's it's kind of unforgiving that way, and and uh, yeah. so you got to be careful with that stuff. You're, you really have to, um, and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. When you have those um, those points where you do push it too far, um, where you can lose something because they wouldn't have been trying to do that at the time. But when you're moving from Technicolor to this division at that point, and that's just completely blowing it up that way and that it's so fascinating the way that how film has progressed throughout the years um and how it's moved forward and now we have such boundless control over what an image looks like now we're not really at, beholden to a chemical reaction that happens in a dark room anymore that it's just we can manipulate that and make anything we want out of it and i sometimes feel like we're hindered because we were, we're limited by our imaginations at this point in time. Mm -hmm. We almost have too many options of what can, we can do. Where before, if you were doing a restoration not that long ago, it would have been, you just clean it up and call it a day and move on. Now you can color grade and do all these things that just, if they were done, you know, 20 years ago, it was, there was an outcry because of it. There was, you know, a lot of pushback that was too far, but now it's becoming more and more normal. And I'm not sure that's necessarily good. I, I love it when all this technology is being used to restore it to what it was. Yes. That's what I like. You know, I want to, I want to see what they saw in a theater. That's it. You know, 30 years ago. I want to, I want to share that experience with them, you know, in terms of, of what they saw and what they heard. And I think that's really, you do anything else and you're kind of messing with the vision that the original filmmakers in, intended. You know, it's, it's kind of, this is not what they had in mind. And it's not necessarily better than what they had in mind. So. Well, it's, I, I'm a sucker for old matte paintings. And so if you, some of those, if you look at something like, it's maybe not a great movie, but I love to look at it, the Hindenburg film. 
Um, I, I love the paintings in that film so much, the matte paintings that they use for these backdrops and they're just beautiful, gorgeous. But that's one of those ones that I think they got it about right on DVD. And if they push it much further than that, it'll probably start to hurt that image quality. Dude, was that the, um, the, the one that came out in the seventies? Mm-hmm. Yeah. With, uh, George C. Scott, right? Yeah. I so I saw that film in a theater and I think just the year before I saw earthquake in a theater. Okay. Yeah. 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 And both of those had incredible matte paintings. I think that was kind of the golden age. Yep. Of, of matte paintings in the 60s and 70s where they really got it to where it looked just amazing. And then of course the other technologies came in, but, but uh, yeah, I remember that very well. That was great looking stuff. Yeah, and there's, a, there's been a few films that have done it since that period, but it's just something that I, I don't know. I think there's an, an aesthetic that because I'm of a certain age that I fell in love with that and I really, miss that something tangible that there was something there that somebody actually took you know a brush and put that to a canvas and made something and i i think we haven't quite duplicated that as and i mean as wonderful as these images are that we see today i feel like there's something that just doesn't grab my imagination the way that that did i that thinks that's my problem with the superhero movies today the marvel films is when you think yeah. that this entire movie is going to be shot in a giant circular green screen stage in Australia, and there's no real anything. There's just actors and green screen and things that move them around. It's, it's, it loses its appeal to me. I mean, you look at Macintosh and TJ, that's completely organic. Yeah. I and mean, you can see the, you can see the, the, the wind blowing the dust. It's, it's that part of Texas, it's flat as a pancake and, and, it's all real and, and organic and, and under Western stars is, is it's lone pine. It's, it's, it's the dust storms and the dust bowl during the time where they were actually experiencing dust storms and the dust bowl and, and water shortages. I mean, and so you're, you're back very much in that, in that time period and um, getting to see these, these locations, these old dams and things like that, that, you know, are most likely long gone. It's, it's fascinating to look at that stuff and it's all organic. You know, they had, they showed up with cameras and reflectors and actors well, and that's what they did. Well, look at, I mean, the, in under Western stars, it's not something you would think of as being a, an action film with special effects that would blow you away. But honestly, I had a reaction to a stunt because I knew that it was somebody really doing it when this guy falls off a horse towards the beginning of the film i'm watching this knowing there was a guy that actually did that move and rolled down now i know that they're taking out every other frame to speed up the way the action and make this look like it was happening much quicker than it was but there was an actual guy falling off this horse and and it just it looks really cool and it's something that you wouldn't dream of doing it that way today well it's interesting republic pictures had the 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 they were sort of the known as for the 30s and 40s and well into the 50s they were known as the top action studio in terms of the the camera and technical uh, technicians that they had the camera people the the special effects people and they had the best they had the best stuntmen in town and um it was dave sharp tom uh steel uh, Dale Van Sickle and a bunch of guys like that all worked for they worked for everybody because the major studios would pull those guys 
and put them on Gone with the Wind, let's say, to do stunts. They were known all over town, but they worked a lot for Republic and Republic sort of specialized in, in action. Um, there, there was another director that worked alongside Joe Kane at, at Republic named William Whitney and Whitney came up with a new way to stage fistfights, which was quickly ad adopted by Republic and eventually everybody else in town. He, he, a friend of his was working on a uh, Busby Berkeley musical over at Warner Brothers. And uh, he asked him if he wanted to come over and watch Busby do a dance number. Now, previously in Westerns and action films, fistfights, you'd have a wide master shot and you basically just have everybody haphazardly throwing punches at each other. And hopefully you'd get something good on film. So Whitney goes over to, to Warner Brothers and he watches this huge dance number being staged. Now, Busby Berkeley would do these huge master wide shots and of the entire dance. And then he would go in and do tight coverage on each individual and he'd shoot the whole thing in pieces. Mm -hmm. And so Whitney said, well, why can't we do fights that way? And so they started staging them that way where they do a master to get into it and then they do everything in pieces so you're not doing 60 seconds of stunts. You're doing five, six seconds here, yeah. this move, this fall. And their, their fights eventually became very ornately constructed, but, but impactful. And it's the way they shoot action nowadays. Um, but, and there, I think it was after Under Western Stars was made. So there's probably still some of those haphazard free-for-alls in, in that film. But uh, but you would get the best, all of the Republic stuff, the technical stuff, the action was much, much better and much more honed than it was anywhere else. It's, and this movie's a lot of fun. I had, I had a great time watching both of these and I think it's going to make a great set, a great double feature to watch together. It's just the, the movies themselves, the, I want to go back and watch more of Roy Rogers films. I, I was raised in Northeast New Jersey, so Roy Rogers was a fast food chain to me. He wasn't an actor. I was aware of him as an actor, but it wasn't something that I really thought of. I kind of saw the later, more, I guess, the Clint Eastwood stuff and those kind of westerns is what I that were sort of these commentaries about the westerns that came before them. And then you know you go back and in studying a little bit of film, and I started seeing you know Stagecoach and some of these other things that happened before. So there's this whole middle period that I've missed in between that time, kind of in that late fifties to probably even up to the early sixties, probably in that range, I guess. So all these Westerns I haven't seen, I'm really looking forward to learning more about them at this well, point. Well, I got, I got a couple of quick recommendations. Okay. In terms, yeah. of, in terms of Roy Rogers. Writing them down. I would start with the, um, the films that William Whitney directed for him beginning about 19, 46 uh okay. there's titles like um bell uh bells of uh hang on a second um <laughs> uh, bells of of san fernando okay um eyes of texas uh the far frontier is these are all harder edge they're roy rogers but they're much harder edge the far frontier plays like a roy rogers movie direct written and directed by quentin tarantino it's okay it's it's right, edgy it's i mean this that one alone the far frontier if you 
find a complete version of it. And I, I, it's public domain, so they're on, you can find them on YouTube and you can find them on, I'm sure, Amazon uh, streaming. But The Far Frontier involves bad guy cowboys. It takes place after the Second World War. It's bad guy cowboys moving gangsters who hit out in Mexico during the war, moving them back across the border into the United States in oil drums. And then they stop just before the border and they, they hit them up for more cash. And then they take the, the barrels to a, um, a dam and dump them out of the truck into the water and, and drown all these guys. That's the scam that's going on. And it's just brutal like that. And it's, it's amazing that this, the primary audience of this film was, was kids, but they're, they're much harder edged. Huh. They're, Roy gets in some pretty intense fights. Any of those films directed by William Whitney. Um, and the other Western series from that era, I would highly recommend from the late 50s, is a series of uh, uh, Westerns that, that uh, Randolph Scott did for director Bud Bedecker um, that started with a film, Seven Men From Now, which is, is an amazing film, but it's an amazing series of films. There's about six or seven of them, I think. Highly seven Men those. From Now is a good one. Seven Men From start. Now is the one to start. Okay, will do. But awesome. When there's a screening for this double feature coming up, you're playing at a film festival, correct? We're we're actually it's not a double feature. We um we're at the Lone Pine Film Festival on Saturday uh, at two thirty p.m. Uh, we're screening Under Western Stars. Last year the festival was virtual only because of COVID, and so we premiered. Uh, Macintosh and TJ at last year's festival. People could could download the link and watch it. This year, we're live with an audience, and, and I'm going to be there with uh, with uh, Cheryl Rogers, Barnett, and Sean Lawrence, who's the guy who um, restored these films. And we're going to do a little panel discussion after after the screening of the film. Oh, that's great! That's fantastic. And then there's going to be a Blu-ray re release for the, as a double feature as well, I believe. Blu-ray. The Blu-ray comes out on, um, I think it's November 23rd, just okay. in time for holiday shopping. And there's a lot of cool extras. Uh, the Blu-ray has, um, we did a cast reunion uh, for a panel for Lone Pine. We did a, a commentary track with, with uh, Andy Robinson and um, uh, Clay O'Brien, who co-starred with Roy. There's behind the scenes footage. Uh, there's all kinds of goodies. There's a 25 minute documentary on Lone Pine for the Under Western Stars disc. Um, we created new trailers for both films and we also include the vintage trailers. So it's it's a lot of, it's a nice, it's a very nice set. That's awesome. That's great. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to checking that out because I, I want to learn more about this and I look forward to Looking, I definitely have Far Frontier. I'm going to be checking that out. And the uh, Randolph uh, Scott, what was it? Uh, Seven Men From Now. Seven I'll Men be, From Now, yeah. I'm going to be looking into both those. So thank you very Great. much. Uh, I'm always looking to expand my film knowledge. And so help, thank you for helping me fill in some gaps. I appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. And thank you for taking the time today. Uh, congratulations. You did a great job with these. So I really enjoyed them. And I enjoyed the well, conversation good. as well. I look forward to, to hearing this. Let us know when it when it's going to be available. I will. I'll make sure it's up this week uh, so that they'll be out in time to promote the appearance this weekend. I'll. Pro I have Thursday 
slotted for it if that would work for you guys. That's uh, great. Thank you. Okay. Perfect. That's yeah, absolutely, absolutely wonderful. All right. All right. Take thank you so much for taking the time. All right. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.